Pure Nonfiction's coverage during the Sundance Film Festival is sponsored by National Geographic Documentary Films. The Hollywood Reporter calls the first wave breathtaking. One of the most important documentaries of all time, raves Music City Drive-In. Nominated for Best Documentary Feature by the PGA and winner of IDA's prestigious Per Lorenz Award, director Matthew Heinemann's The First Wave spotlights everyday heroes inside one of New York's hardest-hit hospital systems during the first weeks of the pandemic. For your consideration for Best Documentary Feature, The First Wave, now streaming on Hulu. Filmmaker Ramin Barani has won acclaim for his many fiction films, including 99 Homes and The White Tiger. Now he directs his first feature documentary called Second Chance. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. Second Chance was the name of a company that created bulletproof vests. Its founder, Richard Davis, started in the 1970s as a pizzeria owner in Detroit. The city's high crime inspired him to create protective gear. Richard is a larger-than-life figure who filmed his own low-budget police dramas to promote his products. The documentary Second Chance opens with footage of Richard holding a gun to his own chest to demonstrate one of his vests. If his product fails, he'll die. It's hard to watch, and hard to look away. And then he pulls the trigger. Easy as pie, guys. Throughout his career, Richard repeated these tests, shooting himself nearly 200 times. Ramin Barani creates a complex portrait of Richard, interviewing him and the people who saw him at his best and his worst. Ramin sets up the story in his narration. At his height, Richard was the king of a global body armor industry. His company, Second Chance was worth over $50 million. His vests were being worn by police, military, and even President Bush. In Richard's story, there was a metaphor for the country. It was by turns absurd, but also frightening. There are many revelations as the film unfolds that we won't spoil in this interview. Richard's products are credited with saving more than a thousand lives, but there are darker chapters to his history explored in the film. Ramin took on this project just after directing The White Tiger, an epic drama set in India. It earned him an Oscar nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay. In his long career, Ramin has made just a few short documentaries that are currently available on Criterion, including a crime story called Bloodkin. For Second Chance, he assembled a team of nonfiction veterans, including executive producer Joshua Oppenheimer, known for the act of killing, and editor Aaron Wickenden, fresh off the Anthony Bourdain biography, Roadrunner. I reached Ramin in Manhattan a few days before the premiere of Second Chance. I asked him how he became interested in the story of Richard Davis. Well, the the producers of the documentary, um, Johnny and Daniel from the Vespucci Group, contacted me um, while I was editing The White Tiger. It was one of the first Zoom meetings I started to have back in 2020. And they proposed um, 
a couple of things. One was the story of, of Richard Davis, and they wanted to know if I was interested to make a fictional film about it. So they showed me um, a few of his archival images of him shooting himself and some movie he had made and told me a little bit about his story. And I said, well, that sounds really amazing, but I would like to make the documentary. And they were planning a documentary also, but they had not thought of asking me about that. And then um, they said, that's interesting. Yeah, let, let's think about that. I sent them a couple of short docs I'd made and they sent me um, the eight hour version of Richard's movie and some documents that they had been gathering some information. And um, I think two weeks later, we got back on the phone and both said, yes, let's, let's make the film together. So tell me more about that, about your motivation to want to do this as a documentary. You have a career over two decades of mainly making fiction films. Yeah, I mean, I've made two short docs. We, In fact, you and I spoke about one of them. And, um, you know, when people like you supported the shorts, when Herzog told me he liked the short docs, I thought, well, maybe one day I could make a, a, a feature-length one. Um, but my focus is always on making fiction films, so I never quite somehow found the time to do that until one day this turned up. And, um, you know, a lot of my fiction films, especially the original stories, um, come out of a lot of research. So I spend a long time meeting people, spending time with people, learning about them, their world. Um, in fact, I always thought if I had just carried a camera with me uh, in the research for Chop Shop or 99 Homes or any of those films, I could have easily had made also a, a documentary component to the fiction film. Or probably what would have happened was I would have made the doc and lost interest because once you make something, you want to move on to another subject. So. That, that interested me, um, and it certainly helped that it was COVID, and I said, okay, it'll be a lot easier to make a movie with, you know, five, six people instead of 50 people. Um, you know, when we started shooting, I think I, I finished the edit of White Tiger in October, November, and a few weeks later, we were in Michigan um, in 2020. So that was the first plane ride, you know, um, after COVID and before the vaccine, and and you know, we did everything for the protocols, but that was the first kind of excursion and the first thing I shot during COVID. And, and so that also helped. And the subject, I mean, when I saw all that archival footage and I heard that Richard had made an eight hour film and I thought about my experience uh, making Bloodkin, a 20 minute doc I had made about a young man in Texas who murdered his father. What totally changed that movie was uncovering that his mom had shot hours and hours of home movie footage of this boy and his father. And that really allowed that film to come to life. And so when I heard about Richard and I read about him, and then I saw all that footage, I just thought, my God, uh, uh, with all this archival footage, this thing could come to life in a, in a very exciting way. There's an extremely rich and compelling archive uh, uh, here. <laughs> yes. we can, it's suffice to say. And it's funny. So, a lot of it is funny. I mean, he has a very... Uh, he has a very, in a way, good sense of humor, I think, uh, sometimes, you know, a, a bit broad, but he's funny. And I, and I would say he was funny in, in real life. I don't necessarily agree with his positions on a lot of issues. I don't agree. Um, I think it's clear he's made some real moral mistakes. Um, that being said, I, I also liked him. Um, he was very friendly with us. He Anytime we went to visit him, he had cooked mac and cheese for us or had bought some donuts and cookies to offer the crew. 
And I mean offer, I mean he would come out into the 20 degree cold and walk around trying to find the PA who hadn't had mac and cheese and offer them. And I don't think he was doing this to cajole us to make a positive movie about him. It's just the way he was. And next to this kind of good spirit and this generosity and humor he had, you know, he had other qualities that maybe I don't agree with. So he is a figure who's had several controversies in his history, and he's had at different times an antagonistic relationship with media and and reporters, and he's done a lot to shape his own image, making films about himself and doing a lot to uh, to put stories out in the world uh, about himself. Um, so I wonder what was motivating him to let someone else in an independent filmmaker to, to tell his story. He would have to answer that. I mean, there is a, um, it's hard for me to say these things because I, I don't want to, to judge him, but there's a, there is a narcissism to Richard, um, which I think was part of the motivation to, to allow us to come in. I also think, you know, he does talk about death, um, his own, uh, um, kind of coming to the doorstep of, of mortality in the film as he's getting older. He's a healthy person, but he's getting older. And I, I, I did feel there was a, fe- a feeling that he wanted to have this chance to tell his story on a larger canvas. Um, his son was there, Matt. Matt was um, you know, very protective of his father, um, but he was there for the interviews. I, I think after the first day, they, it was very clear to them this was not gonna be a, a promotional movie celebrating entirely Richard and Second Chance. They realized I was asking difficult questions, um, but they continued They continued with all the interviews, um, not only in that first round of shooting, but when I came back in April, we met with Richard again to talk again about some subjects and some issues that I wanted more clarity on. So that's, that's some of the reason why I think he did, did talk with us. I wanna ask you about your interviewing style uh, because we hear you in the film asking questions and, and your questions are very polite, but often probing. Um, you know, there's one time where you ask Richard, just describe for me a time you didn't tell the truth. You ask that question very succinctly without a lot of preamble, the way I'm asking this question right now, <laughs> bringing a lot of preamble and context to it. Um, I wonder how you... Uh, found your your interviewing style? I don't know. I, I think a lot of it comes from spending time with people um, researching the fiction films where you're, you're asking a lot of questions. Um, I, I try to be direct, you know. Um, I don't want, I never, I never wanted to mislead Richard into thinking I'm coming here to promote him. I never wanted to trap him in any question. I tried to be very straightforward about what I was asking. Um, I tried to be as generous as I could, as I hope someone would be with me if someone was questioning me. And um, I, I learned what I learned from uh, Werner Herzog was to try to remember to be quiet, that when you ask a question and they answer the question, to try not to ask another question immediately, but to wait. Because oftentimes in real life, uh, when you're not in a, in a formal interview, if you just talk to someone and there's quiet, if you just wait, the person will keep talking. And they're going to where their subconscious wants to take them. 
And um, oftentimes some of the most interesting things come up there. Um, there's certain questions you know you're going to ask. You have, them, you have them in your mind. You've written them down. Um, but you're trying to stay alive in the moment to see where the, where the conversation's going. For example, we're talking now, Tom, and, and in, in interviews I, I do with um, critics or journalists or intellectuals or, or writers, um, I'm always more engaged when I feel they're engaged with me and they're listening to me. And the next question they ask is at least sometimes related to where our conversation has digressed to rather than a list they have. So, you know, when his second wife, Kathleen, who was so eloquent, when she said that Richard was an operatic figure, I wanted to know, well, what would be the opera? What would you call this opera? And she gave such a great answer. Boom. You know, it's just hilarious. And they talk about succinct. It doesn't get any more succinct than that. <laughs> well, you know, there are people who will watch this film and uh, think of Richard as a hero who's made mistakes. And there's people who watch this film who think of him more as a villain who, who happened to do uh, some good. And in the way you construct the film, you hold a lot of power to tip viewers, you know, one way or the other. And, and I wonder how you thought about that power as you were editing the film. Well, I'd like to ask you first, how do you feel it came off? Well, I think of Richard Davis as a complicated figure as the film unfolds some of the things that I find charming about him when I first uh, met him um, uh, feel less charming as it uh, as it goes along um, because he's he's lived a long life and he's been at the center of um, some uh, mistakes in his life that I don't feel like he's fully owned up to. Yeah, I found that. I found that maybe the hardest part in talking with him, especially because I liked him, you know, I was waiting for those moments where he would really, I guess, as you said, own up or describe what he really felt about certain things that he had done. Um, and he didn't, it's sometimes I, he, he didn't seem capable of doing that. Um, when we meet this character, Tim Pazensky, the the man who as a teenager was kind of, tormented in a way by Richard. Um, I mean, I found that story to be so disturbing to hear um, the violence in it uh, and what, what a scar it left on that man. You can see he's in his 40s now, but he still hasn't fully recovered from what happened 20 some years ago to him as a teenager. You see it, you feel it, you hear it in his storytelling. Um, and when Richard says that his inglorious misstep was investigating this crime, you realize that's just completely not the misstep. The misstep was how you treated that young man, um, which I understand. He was under a tremendous amount of pressure at that moment in his life. There was an investigation, the company, the money, the, his, his status, everything could be lost, he felt. So he, he made, let's say, the wrong choice. But he didn't, still didn't seem to be willing to go to that place in his soul, either for the camera, but some part of me wonders even for himself, and then Tim was so, again, had such an eloquence to him, his yin-yang in the end. I, I was so moved by how simply he put it and how generous he was to say that, 
you know, he might have gotten on the wrong end of the stick of Richard, but on the other side, Richard has done so much good for people. I thought that was very moving. I think that that scene sums up the complexity in the film, and uh, and that's coming from the voice of uh, of someone who, as you allude to, has you know good reason to only see the the bad in Richard. Yes, you talked about how to measure the film. That that scene and that man and those final words he says were a big part of how I tried to balance the movie. It kept shifting, working with Aaron Aaron Wickedin, the great, really great editor. Um, he was just phenomenal to work with. So really great editor. And um, there were times where the film we felt was tipping into, it was just too much um, negative energy around Richard. And we kept trying to find how do we, how are we going to balance that? Because there's a lot of stuff about Richard that's hard, but then there's all this good stuff too. And I, I was asking you, cause I was hoping we, everyone's going to interpret the film differently, of course, but I, I hope it was balanced in a way. So you and I are speaking a few days before the film has its world premiere at Sundance. Um, has Richard seen the film yet? Yeah, the producers um, visited Richard and his son, his two sons, actually. One of his sons is not in the film, um, and they screened it for them. Um, I think overall they, they understood. They seemed happy enough with it. Of course, they're not going to be completely thrilled with all of it, but... Um, they told me Richard said, fine, that's fine. I get it. I'm happy with, I'm happy enough with that. Um, I think the son maybe a couple of days later called the producers back and said, okay, I, I, I understand. Um, so I think they're accepting of what it is. I hope so anyway. Yeah. Also the, the, also Matt himself, he was very generous too. He gave us a lot of his time and energy. Um, he was there for all his father's interviews. So he he knew when we left, he said, I understand this is not, this is going to be more 50-50 type film, um, which is, I think, as as you described it, even, that we do see the good things that Richard did. We do hear, there were certain things Richard wasn't prepared to reveal. And I think gathering the characters around him helped us to understand more who he was. Kind of like in Citizen Kane, we cannot understand Kane by himself. We understand Kane through the people that, the journalist goes to meet who talks to us about who Kane is. And here I feel it was the same. We understand Richard. And when I say Richard, I mean Richard, second chance, everything he did, um, everything that happened to that company, guns, the country, all of those pieces that come and go through Richard, I feel we understood more by meeting everyone else. I want to ask about the image of guns uh, in this film. Reminds me of the famous Godard line, uh, you know, all you need to make a movie is a girl and a gun. The The opening scene of this film is incredibly compelling footage of Richard testing out a bulletproof vest that he's created by shooting himself in the chest at, at point blank range. Uh, you say in the film that he's shot himself 192 times in his life. Uh, there's a few different moments in the film where you deploy footage of that, because he filmed this many different times. Every time you show one of those scenes, uh, it never stops being compelling and suspenseful. Um, uh, and and there's all many other um, uses of gun imagery. I mean, Richard was a person 
who loved guns uh, of all sorts uh, and had a shooting range, um, although shooting range may be too uh, small uh, a word uh, <laughs> or description of the, the kinds of things that he did on his property, you know, uh, blowing up cars and uh, canisters of, uh, of explosives. Um, he had a cannon. <laughs> he had a cannon. Uh, the film kind of becomes a meditation in some way about firearms uh, in America. Richard himself was took inspiration from the movies. Uh, you, you referenced Dirty Harry as a, as a film um, that he uh, took inspiration from. I wonder, as you immersed yourself in all this gun footage, um, what you came away thinking. When, when I think of your film career, I don't think of you as someone like a Quentin Tarantino or Martin Scorsese who you know, has spent a lot of time, you know, reveling in the, uh, in the images of, of guns. No, not, uh, not really. Um, I haven't had, I'm trying to think if I had a, yeah, I guess there were some guns in 99 homes, but they're not, um, I can't say that they were reveled in. They were more objects of, of some kind of horror. It's never been something much that interested me, uh, guns, um, I don't have to, uh, uh, um, you know, my own position is I, I don't see a reason to have all these guns. Um, there's one piece of footage, Tom, I wish could have made it into the film, but we never found a way, which is in one of Richard's movies. There's um, Red Riding Hood is going through the forest and sees a bad wolf and <laughs> pulls a huge shotgun out of her basket and fires away. And it was so funny. I, I, we tried so many times to get it into the film, but it kept feeling um, gratuitous on our part. Um, for but me, that, I, that, I, that, that, yeah. that represents a real <laughs> strong belief in this country of, uh, of people who believe guns save lives. Yeah, yeah. That's fine. I mean, I, I didn't really want to get into, in the movie, into those types of issues directly. That's for people to determine on their own. I tried to make the focus more about people. Um, for me, the, the, the culmination really was two moments. One is the, the ending, which I agree we shouldn't talk too much about, but I asked Richard what happened to a key, a key figure that has not been seen in the film. And he describes a shooting that happens at a, dr a drug pad where that person ended up getting executed and you just see a montage of Richard's own movie making of just guns, guns, uh, of cops shooting guns to kill people um, in rapid fire succession that to me said a lot based on the, what was gonna come, the footage that was gonna come after that, after these very violent recreations. And then the final, the f finale of the film, you know, which again, we shouldn't go too much into, but in, in Richard's fever dreams about the future, you know, where he imagines himself in, in the future, meaning when, if he's able to survive his own death and come back from death, if there was the end of death, what would there be? And it still involves guns. This part to me had, was something very um, disturbingly true about people that even in, in our 
in our revelry about the end of death, we still imagine violence. And it's one of the first things that he imagined was more violence. And I don't mean to say this is something negative of Richard. Maybe it isn't. Maybe it's just Richard is much more clear-sighted than any of us, which is, in many ways, is my position that Richard's view that people will continue to, to be predators and destroy one another, historically, it is true. And that, that is, it's disturbing, but it is true. As we are a couple days before this film will uh, will have its premiere, I wonder if it feels any different putting this film out in the world with real-life figures um, compared to putting your fiction films out in the world. Yeah, it does. It does. I'm glad you asked that because um, I did find that I found myself very conflicted in the editing of the film because, as I said, I, I, I like Richard. I, I, I don't agree with him on many, many positions. He did make some terrible mistakes. We've all made mistakes. I've made mistakes, too. He's made a lot, I guess, maybe several of them, and, and the ramifications were pretty large. So sometimes I am, I, I, I don't know, I, I, he's also done so much good, and I hope I stress that enough in the film, that he has done a lot of good for a lot of people, um, not just with his invention of the Bulletproof Vest, but also as a, as a father, um, as a friend. He's very loyal to his friends. Um, he was very loyal to many of his employees, um, and you, you do hear that. You hear that in Aaron Westrick, despite that Aaron became a, a whistleblower in this story and two friends had to ultimately go against one another. Um, I mean, there's a lot happening in the film. Even still in the end, Aaron says, I, I would like to, I think the best of him and I wish we could still be friends. That does say something to the power of Richard Davis's, not just charisma, but his generosity of spirit and his, his entrepreneurship and his, his bravery to create this. So I, I, I guess I would like to stress that in the end. I want to thank Ramin Barani for speaking with me. His film Second Chance is showing at the Sundance Film Festival in the premiere section and seeking a distributor. Our Sundance coverage is sponsored by National Geographic Documentary Films. This is the third of five episodes coming out during the festival. Thanks to our team, series producer Hannah Norden-Swan and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams and our executive producer is Raphael Nehausen. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pure Nonfiction. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. You can read our show notes and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net. Purenonfiction.net.